Welcome to Cup of Tea with the Vet. This is a fortnightly show pre-recorded live on social media. I started the show to help owners fall back in love with their vets and learn more about them as humans. We learn all about the vets' lives on this show and it's really fun and interesting. Enjoy the show. Hi everybody and welcome back to Cup of Tea with the Vet. Got your cup? Lovely. Um, we have got Danny Chambers here today joining us. Oh my God, this guy has got the most incredible CV. Um, so Danny, introduce yourself. Um, this could take a while. <laughs> I won't take too long. No, I'm, I'm Danny. I grew up on a farm and I thought I'd probably become a farm vet, but I've ended up being an equine vet. Um, I do mostly um, equine with some small animal locuming sometimes. I used to do mix, so I did everything to start off with for a few years, and I gradually went more and more down the, the horse route. Um, and I'm a council member of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons as well, so that's something else I do within the veterinary world. Amazing. So let's just start with the whole uh, farm vet thing, because we haven't had a farm vet on before, or an equine vet, either of them. Um, yes. That's amazing. So, what's he, are you actually a farmer's son? Were you actually yeah. born and bred a farmer? Yes, that's what it was. As farming was, yeah, all I knew <laughs> until um, I went to uni. So that was quite a, um, a culture shock growing up in the middle of nowhere in the countryside. Um, so it's a sheep farm mainly. We had a lot of um, beef cattle in the summer as well, and yeah, we I mean, we had a little pony we used to ride to help round up the sheep and cattle, but we never. You know, I never did kind of pony club or had lessons or anything like that. You know, it was just, um, I, I didn't really have much experience with horses until I went to Liverpool Uni. And then um, it was really busy there in the equine hospital. And we used to do a lot of colic surgeries. And it was actually colic surgery. And it got me really interested in equine work. And so, um, and so I went to mixed practice when I graduated. And I actually, um, when I first graduated, I went to Spana with one of my friends. Um, did a month in Morocco with my friend Ian Ashpole, who now is a vet at Chester Zoo. He's someone you should have on here at some point. Um, he, he's a really interesting guy. But um, you had Victoria on last um, last one of these that you did, which I watched. And she's one of my best friends from uni. And she now works for Spanner full time. So, yeah, so that's something that I, that, that was all horse work that we did in Morocco for a month. And then, um, and it was a really good sort of grounding and treating wounds and, uh, colics, but it mainly wounds, you know, um, wounds caused by um, saddles and tack not fitting properly. You know, these are sort of beasts of burden who are working really hard, and if the equipment doesn't fit right, they get these really long-term injuries that can actually limit their work. And, and as Vicky was saying when she was on, I mean, one reason it's really important is a sort of one health kind of um, issues, but you know, animal livelihood is completely interdependent with, with human livelihood. And if the animals get sick or they can't do the work, then it's the children that end up, you know, missing school to do the deliveries or collecting the water or whatever the animal does. And so the knock-on effect is, um, is people not getting out of poverty. So trying to look after, I think it's 200 million horses worldwide, or 200 million families worldwide rely on a horse as a primary source of income. Wow, um, that's an incredible number. 7% of horses in the world uh beasts of burden um only 13 percent are pleasure horses as we know them so race horses being ridden you know dressage show jumping so it just shows how important they are and how much of a bubble we live in actually not realizing that these people still so many people still rely on them and the majority of horses are actually working for a living wow that's amazing my head's popping here because i've got so much to ask because um I mean, you know, I feel quite privileged. I'm now talking to somebody who's worked in the charity, or the oddly same charity, as as you uh, rightly pointed out. Yes, this is uh, Vic, Victoria's uh, nominated vet to come and chat. And so you you both worked in the same charity, and, and that's amazing. It's lovely seeing how many vets are out there doing charity work, which is, you know, wonderful. Well, there's um, no, and the fantastic thing about it is, is um, I think a lot of work in, in India on rabies control programs, so there's... Um, and as most people who are vets who are watching will know that, you know, rabies kills about 50,000 people a year, mainly people who are living in poor areas, mainly children. 
and the cheapest way and the most effective way to prevent humans getting rabies is to vaccinate and neuter dogs and that's cheaper than vaccinating people and it works better because um if you vaccinate all the dogs then the, those dogs are safe they won't be spreading rabies you know they keep other dogs out um whereas if you kill all the dogs like, like people have done in the past the new dogs move into the area and the population's unstable they fight more and and rabies spreads more and, and they actually um uh, and human rabies goes up where you kill dogs. It's, it sounds sort of paradoxical. So there's a th th there's a initiative called End Rabies Now, and by 2030 they're trying to get 70% um, of dogs worldwide vaccinated against rabies, which should should stop all human cases. And vets from all over the world and hundreds volunteer um, from the UK going to places that help and suffering in Jaipur and the World Veterinary Service, and um, that's a great charity as well. And they um. Uh, and there's there's hundreds of vets from the UK and students as well all going out and it's good for them they learn how to spay and neuter because um, you have a big high throughput of dogs and it's really good for your surgical skills but you're also preventing humans getting rabies and helping get rid of a, a really nasty disease. Um, amazing yeah. what I really love about that is the cycle as well you know like how you're you ultimately you're treating people who are treating those animals I mean that's just yeah. incredible. God, well that's so a really good really important point for me because I was torn between being a vet and a doctor and when I was doing my A-levels it was really difficult to decide and probably because I'm from a farm I eventually went down the veterinary route and and what I discovered um, I did an MSc halfway through my course actually and it was the best year I had at vet school it was disease control and um, epidemiology on a national international level so looking things like SARS, coronaviruses, you know, TB, HIV um, and rabies all those kind of zoonotic diseases endemic core diseases are from animals you know so it's a it's a fascinating course and, and I, that's when i discovered that if you are in the right project as a vet you can have as big an impact on human health and well-being as you could have been if you're a doctor you know so um so that for me was a great way of, sort of merging the two and i think it's really fulfilling work definitely and yeah i mean it is interesting actually because a lot of the uh, training you do for your cpds and your extra learning um, you know, it's interesting how much when they start talking about the evidence base and where they've been doing the research, you know, so much comes from the animal world anyway. And then it's not necessarily even extrapolated now. They they do so much. It's really quite impressive that, you know, the similarities and the crossover and how much you have to do with the animals before it can get to the people. And the one medicine thing is also amazing where the people and the animals share the information. It's just, yeah, yeah it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? So blimey. Yeah, that is good. And also, I will point out, it's really nice to have a man vet on here as well. You're the second man vet we've had on here. There's not been many man vets that we've managed to interview. Not many of us around, so yeah. So yes, yeah, so, yeah. girls at vet school now, which is really interesting. Um, and it's, and then, which is, you know, um, what is very interesting, despite it becoming what they call a feminized profession, where we've got many more women graduating than men, there's still an 8% gender pay gap between men and women in the veterinary profession which um and and there's a study that came out uh and i was reading about it on the bva recently um that showed that um the people who thought that sexism wasn't an issue within the veterinary world were also the ones that are offering lower salaries to female vets so um so the the problem is is people who don't think there's a problem so if anyone's watching this and they think that there, there isn't sexism they're, they're probably the person that's inadvertently and unconsciously um you know it's not a deliberate thing but um sort of perpetuating it so wow. yeah a lot of work to be done but um but yeah certainly for um for gender equality we, we need to look at why so few men apply for vet school because it's actually representative of people applying to vet school they're not letting in more women you know it's only there is 85 percent women who apply in the first place so oh yeah. wow yeah so interesting when you start peeling back the layers and sort of seeing you know pulling it apart to try and understand it and then you you find that out and i did hear about the wage wage issue gap thing but i didn't know it was eight percent and um and it is it's really interesting to see those actual facts put out there as well so i mean your your head is literally just popping with knowledge it is incredible i mean i dread to think what it must be like in there i wish, I wish some of it was actual useful clinical knowledge but it's not yeah it's not it's very interesting um i mean this and to be honest you're you've led me straight on to um your politics side there because uh, i know that obviously you have ran for mp and I, i'm going to go back to the rcvs stuff as well but i'm just really interested because obviously you're talking about 
uh, gender and things like that. And um, and I wanted to point out the fact that, yeah, can you believe Sammy has ran for MP? How amazing is that? Tell us about that. How did that happen? Because, you know, it's quite a, I've never heard of a vet doing that. And, and you can explain why, I'm sure. Well, I, d I didn't win. <laughs> so, doesn't uh, matter. Yeah. It was still impressive. Yeah, it took over a year of my life. Um, so it's quite a lot of people don't understand the process of of standing. So, and it's different for every political party you stand for. And I stood for the Liberal Democrats. So, to you have to be an approved candidate to be able to stand. So you go on a day where they assess you and check that you know you, you haven't got a criminal record, and you do sort of mock interviews, and um, and you have to sort of have an exam on policies and 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 assuming you pass that that means that you're you're able to stand and then a local party and i, and I was in north cornwall will say that they need a new candidate because our former mp who had been a government minister decided he didn't want to stand again and um so they needed someone else and so if you're approved you can put your name forward and then you have a couple of months where you have to sort of meet everyone you run your own sort of mini campaign they have meetings every week where you, you meet local members and then it finishes in a big hustings and the hustings if you don't know what it is it's a big kind of um uh, uh, sort of political meeting where people can ask questions, a bit like question time actually. So you're all up on a stage and people chuck for questions and you all answer it. And then uh, you give a speech and at the end of it, they, they vote for who they want. And wow. I got it. So, so that was, um, that took quite a while to get to that stage. And then that was about April last year, um, got selected. And I was hoping to have two or three years until the next general election to really get my name known and meet as many people as possible. Um, so we recruited a team of people, we had about 200 people involved, we were knocking on over 3,000 doors a month, um, speaking to about 1,000 people a month, and the general election came a bit sooner than we wanted it to be, so I'd only been sort of doing it for about six or seven months, and um, yeah, unfortunately I, I, we lost, um, uh, but it was, it was a frustrating time because during the summer and autumn, the polls and the and the bookies had us predicted to win because it's, it's, it's a Lib Dem target seat. So it's been Liberal Democrat more than it's been Conservative for the last 100 years. Oh, OK. And, um, and it's Lib Dem between 92 and 2015. And it got lost, you know, right after the coalition. And so I was hoping to win it back. But um, uh, there's a few things against us. And one was um, obviously the, the get Brexit done um, sort of motto of the Conservatives um, did beat us because there's a 61% leave voting constituency. And so a lot of people are very pro-Brexit. Um, so yeah, so unfortunately didn't win, but it was, it was quite an experience and met a lot of people, raised a lot of money. And, um, you know, when I say met a lot of people locally, really fascinating people, people running food banks, people who are carers, you know, you're talking to people about all the people, you know, you knock on their door and they'll tell you so many things about themselves. It's a bit like being a vet, yeah. actually. And that's one thing I'd just say, if anyone is interested in either standing for local council or as an MP themselves, being a vet is a really good skill um, for two reasons. Firstly, you're used to um, trying to get a rapport with someone and a relationship of trust within seconds. So you're used to meeting new people every day, several times a day, trying to convince them that you know what you're talking about, even if you're doing this unconsciously when you're consulting, um, hoping that they, they trust you. And, and then and as a vet and as an MP who's standing on their doorstep, people tell you amazing things about themselves, you know, really personal information. They tell you about their worries and their medical issues and mental health issues. You know, and, um, and yeah, and I found that being a vet was a fantastic um, sort of preparation for, for doing that. And, and it was also a really good um, icebreaker because, you know, someone who looks like a politician knocks on the door and they they basically, most people understandably go, oh, go away, I don't want to talk to you. Or, you know, <laughs> some people say that. You knock on the door, I'm Danny, I'm a local vet. You know, for a second, they it almost catches them off guard and they, and they actually want to know why you're there and they're happy to chat to you. And, and um, you know, once you once they've sort of hooked and they're, they're interested, then they'll happily talk about anything then. And so it was quite fun. I'd often knock on the door and I'd say, I'm Danny, I'm a local vet. And they'd be like, oh, hang on, hang on. I'll just get the dog. And I think they thought, <laughs> thing, you know, like random dog inspections. And they'd be panicking and shouting up at their wife, go, where's the dog? The vet's here. The vet's here. <laughs> <laughs> like as if you had some sort of right of entry to check their dog. But, um, but yes, and then people always bring the dog out or the cat and you stroke it. And, you know, and it just makes the conversation go so much easier. Um, so, yeah, no, it was a great. It was a great experience. Um, obviously, I was disappointed not to win because you don't put so much time and effort and money, um, lost earnings. You know, I, I sort of went part time so I could 
um, have time to go out every night door knocking and weekends and you know, having meetings and that. But um, and uh, one of my, you know, I mean, Brexit was a defining issue of this last election, but like, my main motivations for getting in politics wasn't Brexit. It was, um, it was mainly, I think we need more scientists in parliament. I think it's really important. And, you know, the biggest issues facing the world now, if you look at the World Health Organization, they, they're saying the biggest issues facing the world are you know, antimicrobial resistance, climate change, you know, risk of a pandemic, um, uh, vaccine hesitancy. You know, and these are all things vets are ideally equipped and trained to, to, to deal with. Um, and you Definitely. know, we, all last year, every public meeting, we're talking about the risk of pandemics and that no one cared about it. And you know, the election is in December and January if we've got a pandemic. You know, and um, you, you know, it's irony. It was, you know, and, and you hear the politicians go, well, no one could have seen this coming. Well, actually, we've all known it was coming. Um, it's been you know, <laughs> warned about um, for decades. It just they did nothing about it, you know, nothing to prepare for it. It's, um, it's it, yeah, these things are predictable. And, and well, you know, climate change, a massive issue, the environment. We've got a limited amount of time to make a big difference. And one reason I stood in North Cornwall, apart from it being sort of where I work and grew up, is um, our local MP is a climate change denier. And I thought we cannot have people like that in Parliament. And I'd like to get rid of them. Because um, I think it's terrible that you can have um, have someone like that making decisions about the future of the earth. Someone that scientifically illiterate and uh, ignorant of the, of the very serious issues. But unfortunately no, I agree. more important and people voted uh for climate change tonight in order to get brexit done but i think that is that is a problem of our politics now you get a single issue and and it overrides all the other important issues you know so yeah yeah i have to say i wish that you were standing in our area i mean blimey i got knocked on by our um local mp once and i was i went <gasps> to say my thing and he ran away yeah literally oh. ran away and he was literally just door knocking for numbers i was oh my god i literally shut my door again our local mp refused to turn up to any public meetings um he wouldn't go to any hustings wouldn't go to any he wouldn't knock on any doors just did no campaign and kept his head down and you know to look at the national picture to to get him through wow um, that's just scary yeah. we need you we need more of you and uh yeah i'm shocked you didn't make it however like you say there was factors against you and time didn't work so are you going to run again uh, it's a big decision and and one thing i would say to people who are interested is um having done it i'd be even more cautious about glibly throwing in and saying do it again so yes I, i'd like to i'd like to fight that seat again i really would like to win but do not underestimate the toll that has on you your relationships your finances your you know the social media trolling the the letters that get sent to you the um the sheer anger of some people um and and also the for me the sort of despair i mean let's say i'm pleased i did it and i'm pleased we, we stood up for what we believed in but you know north cornwall is, was one of the poorest constituencies in the uk We've got about 40 percent of children living in poverty um, wow. the majority of children living in poverty have at least one parent in full-time work because wages are, are so low um, you know it's in work poverty so unemployment's low but poverty levels are high um, and the majority of people going to food banks are, um, are people in work you know and it's um and it is and and the mental health provision is Horrific, and living in poverty is a massive factor that does affect your, your mental health as well, and, yep. and your educational opportunities. You know, your your parents' income and wealth is a bigger indicator whether you'll go to university than your intelligence. And wow. um, it's you know, a university isn't for everyone, but it's unfair that basically a postcode dictates whether you've got a, a decent chance of going to uni or not, um, no matter what sort of person you are. And um, and when you when you when you're speaking to hundreds of people in these situations that are struggling to, 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 to get out of this kind of rut that they've found themselves stuck in, um, and then you lose against a MP who votes to punish people for being sort of poor, disabled, and votes to remove free school meals from some of the you know, poorest families in the country, it, it is actually heartbreaking. You know? And I didn't realize how much it would affect me and my mental health afterwards to sit in part you know because parliament's something you sort of watch or you're aware of the news when someone's sitting there 
in the place you would be in had had you won. And they're voting to prevent, you know, um, children, refugee children being reunited with their family, or they're voting to um, against animal welfare standards being maintained, which for me as a vet is massively important, and as a farmer, massively important. Because, and they're voting in the opposite to every way you would <laughs> you would vote. It's um, it's it's painful. Yeah, that's yeah. You know, and it becomes sort of personal, and you've got to sort of. Uh, detach yourself and just pick yourself up and maybe have another go but you feel completely impotent you know just watching watching you know things all the warnings you gave for a year of not being listened to and then it's all sort of coming true you know so well what I'm hearing here Danny is that vets are incredibly caring and passionate people which we already know and should be running the country clearly <laughs> I don't know. So, um, you do genuinely need a big diversity in Parliament, and you, you know, do. we don't need any more of these children that are in there. I certainly, and you know, so many, so many politicians did um, politics, philosophy, and economics at Oxford, or their lawyers. Which is, there's no bad thing about having people trained in those, but they're, they're disproportionately represented in Parliament. Yeah. Um, there, there hadn't been a vet in Parliament for about 120 odd years. Um, you, you know, there is now someone won in the last election. Um, a guy up in Cumbria, so he, so oh, wow. yeah, so a guy called Neil Hudson. He did. Um, he was really lucky. As someone, um, he 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 got a he did exactly the right thing, and it's what I should have done. Um, but he got selected to stand in that seat after the general election had been called in a completely safe seat, and and um, you know, whoever was standing there was definitely going to win, and he won. You know, so. That, that's how you do it um don't spend a year spending your own money and knocking on doors just choose a seat that you know you're going to win no matter what and um and then you don't have to do any campaigning and, and you'll be in so, so yeah, do, you, do you think you'd like to change over to politics or do you want to continue being a vet or is it just a part-time try at politics and you want to go back to being a vet or well, there's only windows of opportunity so would i try again yeah but it depends on the next general election is and at the moment that's 2024 so you know um until then i will quite happily continue being a vet um, i've just taken a new job a, a few weeks ago now with equicool which is quite exciting it's an equine out of hours service so it's a bit like vets now do for small animal where we provide out of hours for um for equine practices and one of the big problems in equine practice and it's like all vets but equine vets have a, is, is, is really long hours and very unpredictable finish time. So you might meant to be finished at six at night and you're not on call, but a colic comes in at five o'clock and it's, you know, an hour away. And by the time you get there and treat it and get back again, you're not getting back till, you know, eight or nine at night, even though you're not meant to be working. And and equine practices tend to be, you know, this, the way the part, sort of part of the community, and even your weekends off, you're meant to be helping out the local pony club or, you know, horse show or something. You want the vet on duty, which you're expected to do in your own time, you know, so... So by providing an out-of-hours service, the, the idea of it is that vets will um, have a better work-life balance. They will finish work on time um, and and just doing less nights on call. You know, and if you're doing one and two or one and three or you know nights on uh, on call, that's it's, it's 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 draining, isn't it? You know, so and so that's the theory behind it. So for me, I work a week on and a week off, so a week of nights and a weekend and then a week off. So it gives me the flexibility and time to do things like the RCVS or or get involved. We've got like Cornwall Council elections coming up next year, so I better go out door knocking and help and get our councillors elected, you know, without taking holiday time, you know. So um so it works really well for me. And I think it's a really important thing that vets look at, you know, work life balance and improve mental health of veterinary profession and if we can contribute towards that. I think Equicore's a great idea. Excellent. So, um, so tell us a bit more about the RCVS because most owners don't actually know about the RCVS, and when you say that, they might have seen that logo but yes. not really acknowledged it. So, um, yeah, what is the RCVS? Well, the RCVS is the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. So it's basically the way the GMC regulates doctors, and the, you have to be a member of the GMC if you're a doctor, and if you do something wrong, you can get struck off. Or, um, and it's, that's what the RCVS is for vets. So you have to be a member of the RCVS to be able to practice. So if you go to a UK vet school, you know, we, we check that the training meets minimum standards. You know, we check the exams are, 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 are preparing people to be safe and proficient vets in practice. 
And so you become, as you graduate from a vet school, you become a member of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. And then to remain a member, you know, you have to do quite a lot of training, like CPD, we call it, you know, a few days of that a year to keep up to date. Um, you know, you have to um, make sure that you're sort of working to a, a, a minimum standard to ensure that animal welfare is upheld and the public are getting a, a good service. So the RCVS, yeah, we, we look at the standard of vet schools. We, we look at... Um, you know what's acceptable practice for vets you know should um and and we look at the effect of various factors on the veterinary profession as well you know things like well a big one you know is a, we might have a no deal brexit coming up and that's going to affect the veterinary profession because 55 percent of vets who register every year in the uk come from the eu and 95 wow. vets who work in public health things like abattoirs and um uh, from the eu so we're, and we're already short of vets so um so, you know, that, that's the sort of thing we've got to be mindful of to make sure that we have adequate manpower to ensure that animal welfare is, is upheld and um, the public and animals get a decent service. So the RCVS are basically amazing. Um, and what's your what's your role on the council with them? Um, well, there's 32 councillors at the moment, I think. So some of them are appointed from vet schools um, and s some of us are elected, which I, I was elected by, by other vets. And... Um, we, my role, uh, well, the council make decisions on, on on how the profession is run. So we have meetings about that fairly regularly. Um, I'm specifically, I'm on the education committee. So we look at, um, you know, how veterinary education is delivered and how continued professional development, the, the minimum requirements for that. Um, you know, what vet students should be doing. Um, I'm chair of the advanced practitioner board, which means we look at, um, you know, people who want to apply to be called an advanced practitioner um, have they met the minimum standards for that? Have they got the right qualifications? Are they doing the right type of work? Um, so that's the kind of thing that we that we do, and that's what I do. That's so interesting. And so um, what would you say to a vet who was thinking about joining the RCVS as a council member? Well, if you if you want to get elected, um, it's we just had our council elections this this um, year round. So so we've got some new council members. Um, it's really interesting. You have to like meetings. Um, so, so just be mindful of that. Um, it's Things are just slightly more complicated than you expect. So I think when I first got elected, I, I stood in my friend Sarah, he sort of stood in a joint ticket. And the two things I wanted to do is really champion veterinary mental health and, and promote evidence-based medicine. Um, and so at the time there's a big campaign to prevent vets from using homeopathy and 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 so we managed to change the sort of the rules so that you know vets can't use homeopathy on its on its own um because people are giving homeopathy instead of a vaccine and of course they get no protection from it and so that's the kind of thing that we changes you can make if you get elected so if there's something you're really passionate about that you need changing um or if you just want to be involved in how um, how the professions run and it's really important we have people you know from from first opinion vets and people working in practice on the ground like I am I'm dealing with owners every day who truly understand the the difficulties and challenges faced by um, by vets in practice you know when you're, when you're regulating vets we're there to regulate not represent the British Veterinary Association represents vets and vets interests we're there to regulate but you need to make sure that the people who are regulating genuinely know the challenges um, that are faced by vets every day you know so yes, that, that makes sense. these sort of rules and um, that, that you come out with are feasible and reasonable and um, and not going to sort of unduly affect the mental health of vets as well yeah it's a lot to think about but that's really that's really amazing you're just like election 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 aren't you <laughs> of various yeah. oh, thank you. <laughs> at least i won one yeah <laughs> um just want to say quickly hi to anita who is watching us thank you anita um do guys remember that you can ask questions i know that this is um uh, all all very political orientated but it's just so interesting to get a different angle and um see something else and yeah it's really interesting danny um also, I did just want to go. So, what is your role within the BVA? So, the BVA is the British Veterinary Association. Yeah, well, I, I'm not, I, I used to be on the policy committee, which is fascinating work. And if anyone wants to do it, I'd highly recommend it. I made some really good friends from it. 
the BVA president, Daniela, was on the policy committee when I was there. And Malcolm Morley, who's just chaired the TV working group, um, and Ian Richards, and you know, there's a few. It's a fascinating. They they basically um, decide what the British Veterinary Association's policy is going to be on a whole variety of issues. For example, you know, TB control and cattle, or non-stun slaughter, or you know, tail docking of puppies, or uh, you know, um, animals in zoos. And then they lobby either the government or the RCVS or whoever can make the changes to to push them forward and try and get media traction on those things and yeah I re i'm not i don't do that anymore because i'm because i'm on the rcvs and you, you can't really do both at once but it is um it, yeah it's very enjoyable and i think it's it's really it's really good to um better think about issues in detail and discuss them that you wouldn't normally do in your day-to-day -day work it's the same for the rcvs you know um, you know you can get a bit bogged down in a routine when you're vetting um because you You've got so much to think about um, treating the animals that you see every day that you don't sort of think, well, I wonder what the ethics are of, you know, um, some sort of animal testing or you know, non-stun slaughter of livestock or transport of livestock. Because if and, and if you are, you know, a small animal vet or an equine vet, it's still perfectly reasonable to have an opinion on those things. And and if you if you're in a situation where you have to sit down and really think about it and discuss it and read about it, it can be really enriching and satisfying as well so. i think it's really it's really great to know that someone like you is out there making a difference on those things so from an owner perspective and the audience watching um who audience please get involved because this is really interesting you know all those subjects you mentioned there tail docking you know mm. they're all things that everyone is so aware of and yeah. everyone is so passionate about and yeah. i think actually people often get lost and think well tail docking's happened, vet must have done it, they must agree with it, or something like that. And actually, it's really nice to hear that, no, no, the vets have got you back, they're trying to get rid of these things. Yeah. And I, I certainly know through my career time, you know, so many things of, you know, that were sort of okay, not okay, they were never okay, but they were done sort of 20 years yeah. ago. Now, it's completely frowned upon, and you just think, thank yeah. God. And it's people like you that made that difference and made that happen. Well, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of people working really hard in a lot of committees, both at the RCVS and the BVA, and you've got different ones, you know, the British Equine Veterinary Association, the British Small Animal Veterinary Association, the Cattle Association, you know, there's, there's a lot of associations and a lot of really dedicated people working on a lot of committees trying to change things for the better. And the difficulty you have is that, you know, there's, um, I think it's 24,000 practicing vets in the UK, about 30,000 vets. They don't even all have the same opinion on everything either. So you're trying to find you know, consensus and what, what the general um, the opinion is, you know, what, what is acceptable and what isn't. And, and also, especially from a regulatory point of view, you're actually sort of leading or driving what the opinion should be, you know, because um, obviously if you're um, a vet in practice, um, you know, you often you, you want the guidance and you want the, um, the, 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 the insight of, of people who have discussed these issues and looked at all the um, the other options, you know, so, and, and that, that means that you can use your, the RCBS as a, as a shield to, to protect you as a vet, you know, so, for example, you know, the RCBS have, have said that, you you know, you can't um, backdate horse passports, which is a really common thing in the equine world, people, if the, um, if the RCBS, well, if someone um, has a horse passport that was due, you know, yesterday, and they have to be done every year, and if they're late, you have to restart the course, so that costs quite a lot more money, and if you have the um, if you end up um, if owners really want you to uh, just say, "Oh, just say you did it yesterday," you know that would be fine, and it would, and there's no welfare issue in that. But you can say, as a vet, look, I will get struck off if I if I put a false date on this passport. Yeah, you know, it's not me. I'm not being an asshole. It, it, that's the rule, you know. So it's um, and and so it kind of helps you to have, you know, people. Um, in first opinion practice like me, you can sort of make rules because then you can almost, because it's the right thing to do, it's ethically the right thing to do, it's the honest thing to do, but you can kind of hide behind the rules and go, look, I'm sorry, my hands are tied. The RCVS says that we are not allowed to lie on, on horse passports, so I'm not going to lie on the horse passport. You know, don't ever go at me. You know? <laughs> so, you know, and I think that's a really important part of what we, what we do is protecting vets, you know, as well as upholding standards and, and looking after animal welfare for owners. That's really good. So Anita has uh, very kindly said she doesn't envy you, Danny. 
Um, and she's also said very difficult and passionate subjects. So, uh, which is absolutely right. I mean, you know, with that in mind, you, how would you how would you say that it's best for the public to get involved to support these decisions as well? You know, how how would average Joe get in and help with these types of things? Because we see all this stuff all the time, and I know I see the odd, you know, um, petition to sign, but you feel like you're forever signing a petition, and it doesn't you know, nothing changes. So, you know, and it just gets upsetting. Like you say, it's very you get passionate about it so you know what would be the best thing you'd suggest for somebody to get involved the easiest thing and it's more effective than you realize but um when someone at the bva runs a petition is to sign it and share it and and show a lot of support on social media because they do get media attention when it's quite obvious there's a lot of backing to it and one sort of fairly recent example is unsuccessful but is a good attempt is that the the bva ran a petition um to try and um stop animals being able to be slaughtered without stunning first and because they had over a hundred thousand people signed it it got debated in parliament and it wouldn't have got that far if a hundred thousand people hadn't signed it you know so it's um it's you know and there's only thirty thousand vets in the uk so most of them were members of the public signing these things um so you know that so and definitely you know follow the rcvs and the bva on on you know facebook and social media and you know, comment and show support. I mean, it's, it's an easy thing to do. Um, I was going to say, so do they do they share their petitions on their Facebook pages? Because I must admit, I've never even seen that. I just didn't even know. So that's that's opened my eyes, and I'm in the veterinary well, world. So. Yeah, they, they, they definitely do. Um, and I, I think as well, like, how else can you um, help? Well, a lot of it as well is just, um, you know, if there's an issue that you're specifically passionate about, you know, that's something worth, you know, writing even to your local paper about because local papers love publishing stuff from local people you know they, they'll publish um i don't say they'll publish anything but like they, you know they, they really want content and they want people who are passionate about issues you know and, and most local papers are online now and most of them have a facebook page you know if there's issues you really care about you know it's making other people aware of them is that's how you make change you know making because you can't change what you don't know about and that's um, true and, and yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, it's a really good idea. So uh, everybody watching, get your pens out or your typing um, and start writing something for the local paper. And, I, you know, it's, it's actually quite great, isn't it? Because you can do a little bit of reading, do a bit of research. You know, you can make yeah. quite a nice, you know, bit of information to enlighten people as well. I mean, I'm, I'm anyone who knows me knows how much of an eco warrior I am. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's so interesting when you learn new. I mean, it's also, uh, I mean, there's so much information to know. It's almost impossible. It is impossible to know it all. Um, but it's make a change. Yeah. Write to your MP. You know, um, that's and a lot, most of the MPs I've met have told me that they get more correspondence on animal welfare-related issues than they do on any other subject. Um, wow. Yeah. You know, well, good. Good. Well done, people. Well done, all you out there that are doing that. Then. Doing that well so, um, Danny, I mean, I feel like you mustn't have a spare time, but do you? And if you do have any spare time, what do you like to do in it? Oh, yeah, I do get spare time um, now. I didn't have last year when I was running for Parliament, but it's been quite nice this year to have some spare time. And, and obviously, um, yeah, one of the, the, the frustrating things, but the, one of the advantages of, of this this um, pandemic is that, you know, suddenly we all had a bit more spare time. You know, locum work dried up a bit and it sort of forced you to have some time off and focus on other things. And although it has caused a lot of problems for a lot of people, it's that some of the nice benefits have been, you know, having time to exercise during the day without coming home exhausted and dragging yourself out on a run at sort of half nine at night, and um, you know that that kind of thing. So yeah, so what I, I was hoping this year to do some triathlons, but they all got cancelled. Wow. But that was my plan. Um, I've done some little mini ones before, but I've never done sort of proper big ones. Um, I really like. Uh, sort of long hikes. Um, my friend and I and a load of other vets did um, Offers Dyke, which is a border between England and Wales. It took about 12 days and we hiked along it and camped and stayed at people's houses. And we're going to do another one in October for Vet Life, which is a charity. Um, so we're sorting that out now. So we'll probably do maybe the Snowdonia Way, something like that. Um, and obviously, um, my mum's still got the family farm at home. So we get time to go back there. Oh, lovely. Well, you know, and there's always plenty of, you know, things that need doing on a farm. Um, so, so, yeah, so I've got plenty of um, things.
things to fill my time. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. bless you. Well, that sounds lovely. So what's your favourite part of being a vet? I think it's the, um, the, the interaction between... I think it's the, it's the recognition of the human-animal bond. You know, I, I love how happy people are when they're... and how grateful they are when, I'm, when, when an animal gets better and goes home. So sending a dog home... And seeing how sort of mutually happy, you know, the dog and the owner are happy, and the same as I do mainly horses these days. But you know, get someone not sure what's wrong with their horse, sort of not performing right, they're not being able to ride it, and you discover it's got something treatable like gastric ulcers, and you treat them, and you know, and you see a couple of months later they're out competing again, and it's their hobby and it's their it's their identity, and and they they couldn't be more grateful, and and and, and sort of leading on to that, actually, it sounds a bit morbid, but you know, helping people with those decisions about having to let animals um, go. You know, as a nurse, you'll be sort of very sort of familiar with this as well, because the nurses are hugely involved in these discussions. And but you know, I think it's really important that people uh, don't feel guilty for for euthanasia. And I think there's a sort of misconception that euthanasia should be the absolute last resort, and it's a failure. And and actually strangely as a vet when you when your job is to relieve suffering it can be one of the most satisfying things you do because you make sure the owner understands why it's necessary you talk them through it you counsel them through it you make sure they're not feeling guilty about it and you make sure you know that that no suffering occurs um it it owners are infinitely grateful and i, th I think it's a, a sort of privilege to be part of that because it's such an intimate relationship and you're there at a very intimate time and um, and yeah, so that's a bit of a, a morbid, you know, what do I like about being a vet? It's not, you know, not killing yeah. animals. But it's one of the most important things we do. And I think it can be done really well or really badly. And when it's done well, it, it, people are, can't be more grateful. And when it's done badly, people can have guilt for years that they didn't do the right thing, or they maybe don't ever get another animal, you know. And I think part of that is, is how they, you know, were approached about it and there are yeah. kind of not people not putting things to sleep because they haven't had it explained animal suffering that are never going to get better or in a lot of chronic pain and and you know and and, and it's having the ability to discuss these options and approach the subject with their thoroughness to say this you know you're not doing this for the welfare of the animal that you know you've got to think about the animal as well as your own feelings and, and if you if you communicate that in the right way most people and you know they're not deliberately trying to keep their animal in pain it's just not how they perceive it you know and you have to make sure you can sensitively and uh, you know discuss this with them um, it's totally true and you're absolutely right i mean at the end of the day vets don't want to put something to sleep because they just want to it, it's because it needs to happen so you, otherwise they would never be able to do it for their own mental health would they so um you know it has to be done well and done right and you know it is incredibly sad always you know without fail especially with horses some people have had horses for 30 years the same horse you know um they bred it and it doesn't happen very often now but it used to happen a lot um i find it very strange putting a horse to sleep that's older than me um yeah. you graduate in your mid-20s it happens quite a lot and as you get to your 30s it happens less often um it still happened happened last year i put to sleep a 40 year old horse so wow. it's, but I, I don't think it'll I think I might have to move on to tortoises now if I want to, <laughs> to treat animals that are older than me. <laughs> so can, wow. Yeah, no, I just find something really moving about it. I think this animal's been around longer than I have, you know, and, and I'm yeah. living its life. It's quite, it's quite sobering. You're a very deep thinker, very deep thinker. Um, so I do love this question. I can't help it. What oh. still grosses you out as a vet? Oh, you know, this is going to sound pathetic, but just dog shit. I can't stand it. Like, I absolutely can't. <laughs> I can't. I can barely bring myself to pick it up. If it's if an animal shits in the consult room, it's just ugh, I could like actually vomit. You know what I mean? It's just it, people think a vet would be used to it, but yeah, yeah. I'm I, not going to lie, Danny. That is pretty pathetic, actually. I'm no, so sorry. No, I, I can't go. even pick up for you on that one. That's really yeah. like I don't know what to say. Oh, I'd rather have my whole arm off a horse and one finger inside a dog, but you know. It's, it's, <laughs> Well, I'm glad that I asked because I haven't had that as an answer yet. So, um, you know, so well done. That's impressive. Um, Anita has also said, um, I'm guessing euthanasia has been hard on vets during COVID too. 
Yeah, well, probably, I think the hardest thing about euthanasia during COVID was that, um, especially during the peak of the outbreak, vets were also trying to adjust to working sort of remotely and not having clients in the same room as them, and especially because there's, you know, public health has to take precedence over animal health, and if there's a risk that you could infect, especially a vulnerable person, an older person, people were having to leave their dog with the vet and the dog vet was going to put it to sleep without them being there sometimes and i think that was just another level of upset really you know and and it's a you know i mean euthanasia is a are never um enjoyable but i say you can do well and do them uh, and be satisfied you've done a good job and i think it's it's harder if the owner's wishes aren't can't be met because they, they just can't be with it you know um so that was tough i think for a lot of vets definitely so I also want to ask, what do you love about physio? Physio, I think what I love about it is um, how it's probably one of the only, it's probably underrated, but it's one of the disciplines that gets animals and people back to full health. And if you don't do it properly, they won't come right. And if you do it properly, they will come right. In you know, a lot of cases, especially when it comes to injuries, especially in sports horses, and it, and I think a lot of people are on unnecessary medication and painkillers, probably the same with animals that wouldn't need them if they had their um, if they did their physio basically if they did their exercises, their stretches, the muscle builds. And I know from experience, um, I was, I was exercising really hard this year, and then my left hip was sore, and I've been seeing a physio, and and I've got to do the right stretches. And if I do the right stretches, I will be okay. If I don't, it will be really sore, and I'll need ibuprofen. And that's just down to having an expert who can um you can tell you how to fix yourself drug free which is what we want really isn't it side effect free um, exactly well that's awesome so thank you for that and uh yes i couldn't agree more so uh, hit the nail on the head there that's lovely <laughs> so if time and money was no object what would your dream be what would your dream achievement be god that's a good question if time and money is no object my dream achievement be um, I feel like you're going to say run for prime minister. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you need the money. If time and money is no object, you could do a really good campaign. Um, winning campaigns, winning parties have more money. It is that simple. You can communicate your message. You own the media. You have, you know, um, you'd better make some. What, what I love about um, tremendously wealthy people who try and have a positive impact on the world. People like Bill Gates, you know, he's he's really into his global health and vaccine sort of delivery and research and um, sort of poverty alleviation. And I think that kind of thing is fascinating work to be in anyway, whether you're rich or not. But, you know, if you could, um, you can have a massive impact if you're, if you're looking at sort of global health and, um, and it takes money, it does take money because well let's hope let's hope we can we can have bill gates listening to this and he can look after you and sponsor you that would be amazing campaign <laughs> um, so anita has kindly said finding a great animal physio is like finding a bar of gold bless that's you couldn't agree more absolutely i mean i think that's like finding the great anything isn't it the great vet the, you know anyone you have faith in and, and love is you know is part of your life it's you know when you find the best ones it's amazing so um Yes, couldn't agree more. Um, so, Danny, what's yeah. the weirdest dream you've ever had? I hardly ever remember <laughs> dreams, hardly ever. I don't know if I dream very much at all. I just don't seem to remember them. But to show you how much of an effect this, <laughs> this political campaign must have had on me is the only dream I remember from last year was um, I was arriving late at this hustings you know dreams are awful like for whatever reason i couldn't get them in time and it had started and you know our mp was answering questions and i wasn't there yet and the and i got there in time just for the question about what is your favorite type of pizza and and i said ham and pineapple um which i quite like but i don't think it's my favorite but i don't know what in the dream i said it's ham and pineapple and everyone was booing and really unhappy with me and you know, <laughs> <laughs> and our MP, I don't remember the answer, but I remember it's something really Cornish. It wouldn't go on. It was like, you know, like a, a Cornish pasty pizza. He says, and everyone was clapping and cheering, and it was a great answer. You know, it is kind of like 
this this is really affecting my mind now. <laughs> when I'm, when I'm, firstly, the fact I remember a dream, but secondly, I'm dreaming about not having a Cornish enough pizza topping um, and everyone booing me. That was that's that, yeah. that is bonkers. It does sound a bit <laughs> like you had a night out on the town before having that particular dream. So um, I can remember for the last ten years as well. So you know. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, Anita might become your new new fan. She's just said uh, crowdfunding Danny for president. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. So, um, what's your what's been your most memorable part of your career so far? Um, a few different ones, I guess. Being elected to our CVS was a really um, it meant a lot to me because other vets vote for you, and that shows that you're giving them a voice and they're trusting you to um, to sort of work in their interests and be what we call a compassionate regulator, you know, and show sort of empathetic leadership, you know, so um, that really did mean a lot to me. Um, I've really enjoyed the traveling I've done as a vet, you know, the work in India and Gambia and um, Morocco. Um, probably one of the most interesting things I did was about three years ago, I was working in Iraq on a livestock improvement program for an oil company. and, the, and I, I never thought I'd go to places like that. Um, you get driven around in a, you know, in a land cruiser convoy of all the security guys. Um, we're, we're quite near sort of Mosul, so that's where ISIS were at the time, and they. Um, that must be weird. Yeah. yeah, it's just a fascinating experience. Fascinating, and you know, it's um, I, and I guess I, you you take a step back and think how, you, you know, you get in these situations and you sort of forget how unusual they are you know and i just take a step back and think i was really lucky to be able you know to be paid to go to places that you'd normally have to be in the army to go to i guess you know um and meet people living in these situations and and meeting people who are you know been refugees and been to europe and gone back home again um and that, that was really interesting the, the, hearing their stories and how they got into europe and how they got back again and and, and meeting um and going past that refugee camp, the Syrian, we were at the Syrian border, you know, loads of Syrian refugees pouring over the border with their livestock yeah. being in refugee camps, you know, it's, um, it's stuff you normally just see on TV and on the news and makes it more, more real, you know, because a human story to what is just a, uh, like the Syrian conflict. I mean, it's, it's been going on longer than World War Two, and, <laughs> and we sort of forget about it now because of coronavirus and Brexit. And actually there's a war going on where people are dying and it's not even news. No, so it's very sad definitely very sad wow <laughs> you have just done so much it's insane um so if you could have a facebook live chat with anyone yeah. dead or alive who would it be probably there's a guy called hans rosling i've been a massive fan of for a long time he does ted talks he's a he used to be a doctor he became a professor of sort of global public health and he does amazing funny amusing talks with you know statistics puts up graphs and that but in a really sort of interesting way of interpreting data and he just looks at um you know inequalities between countries and within countries and um like the best way to um prevent uh global population growth and and you know all the evidence shows the best way to do that is to ensure that firstly child mortality is reduced um and and that women get better education and they're sort of the two biggest factors um yeah. that, and he sort of debunks sort of myths like people thought that some religions have more babies than others and um and it turns out that if you look at countries and you look at their gdp and you look at the birth rate the actual whether you're christian or muslim or whatever religion actually has no effect on on number of um babies born per woman um it's it, it's all to do with the, the, the relative income of each country and that's partly to do with you know the healthcare systems they get and the education they get you know so so wealthy muslim countries um have low birth rates like a, like the uae and um dubai those sort of places and poor christian countries have high birth rates you know so it, it, it is, it's very interesting so a guy's called hans rosling if you want to look up one of his ted talks there's one called the magic washing machine and it talks about um Oh, let's let you watch it. It's fascinating, and, and and one of the best books I read. He actually died last year. It was, it was really sad, but as as um as a big enough fan to have his um his book on pre-order when it came out. It's called Factfulness, and it sort of 
depicting the world as it as it really is you know wow. like how many um children in the worldwide do you think are vaccinated did you, actually it's a good question this is what you go through in the book he debunks myths about how because we think the world is worse than it is and actually yeah. everything's improving it's improving a lot there's still a lot to do and inequality is one thing you asked at the beginning of the book is how many it's a good question for you actually donna how many children do you think worldwide receive a vaccine Oh, uh, worldwide, I'd probably say quite low, to be honest. I guess 30%. Yeah, yeah, 90%. So wow. I get, you know, some sort of vaccine, at least polio, um, measles, that kind of thing. So, wow. you know, it's really fascinating work. That, 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 you I know, think I'm going to have to look at that, definitely. That's yeah. frustrating as well is that you see how much progress has been made. We've got to be really careful that we don't get complacent because in the UK last year, the World Health Organization took away our measles free in the uk that, that took away the measles free designation so the uk is no longer measles free because our vaccination rate's gone down below 90 percent. so you know in some ways we're taking steps back you know um so interesting well i definitely am going to look into that because that sounds amazing so tell us something that people might not know about you um oh what i've I bought a banjo that I never really learned to play properly. That's probably I don't um, I don't normally advertise that I own one. It's, um, I love that. I love that. That is perfect. Yeah. It's been absolutely amazing talking to you, Danny. You've absolutely blown my mind. There's so many facts. I'm going to re-listen to this because it's just been incredible to hear what you've got to say. You're such a passionate person. It's absolutely crazy. I mean, God, honestly, I wish that you were running for MP round here and stuff, because it would just be amazing. So I do feel that, um, you know, in the long term, like it's, it's been a funny time in politics. It was a big surge of nationalism and, and you know, people like Trump and Johnson get to power by, you know, telling lies really, don't they? And, um, and I'm hoping there will be a sort of backlash against that. And once again, you know, if COVID has shown anything that people actually do need experts and people who know what they're talking about and people who've got the best interests of the country at heart. And you see places like New Zealand and Canada and Germany where, um, you know, the leadership's completely different. I hope, you know, maybe by the next election, people will want a, you know, a more kinder politics, a more empathetic leadership. Definitely, you know, definitely. And, that, and hopefully we'll... Hopefully, if enough people care, we can do it. If enough people oh. can do it. The problem is not enough people care, but they will eventually, I think. They'll get I hope people. so. I hope yeah. so. We need care. So really, really want to hear what you've got to say. Um, what is your top tip that you want to give everybody? Well, from a, a vet point of view, I guess it's, it, it's just... Uh, being a good vet is all about good communication. I know we touched on this until about euthanasia. And when I first graduated, my cousin's a GP, a human GP, and he um he just said you know, the thing to remember is people don't care how much you know they want to know how much you care and that's really cheesy but actually it sums up all you need to know about communication skills because when you're standing there in front of someone's horse or their dog or a cow or whatever as long as they can see that you absolutely um are dedicated to to sorting out their problem and you really care about their problem that that's all that matters and it doesn't matter if you've got two phds and a diploma if they think you're not that bothered um, or you're distracted, um, but they'll be unhappy with you. So, yeah, that's probably it. Show you care. Because I think a lot of vets do care, and they maybe don't demonstrate it quite as overtly as, you know, if you've got 40, 50 consults in a day and they're rushing in every 10 minutes, and, you know, you might get the diagnosis right, you might get the treatment right. And if the person feels like you rush them in and out without showing that you care, they, they, they go away feeling that they haven't had a very good service, and, and actually they may, maybe they have, you know. So just taking the, that little moment to, to really demonstrate that you, you care about the animal and them and their problem. So. I agree. Well done. So Anita also wants to say uh, that the countries that you uh, mentioned, women run those countries. So, <laughs> yeah. um, and she's also just shown, thrown in, um, that is so very true. And that's about your final comment. And um, yeah, so. Well, thank you, Anita. It's nice to have a fan. <laughs> She's made loads of comments and I <laughs> appreciate that. Exactly. You've been well listened to. Um, and I'm sure that loads more people have been listening and really enjoying what you've got to say. And it's been really nice, as always, to get to know a vet far better and learn the human side behind them and how much they care and how much they can care. 
um, you know, it's a side that we don't get an opportunity to see very often. So and I'll tell you what, though, I know you're doing a couple of tea of the vets, but we couldn't do this about vet nurses. And I thought that showing you care, that's often done on a practice level. It's often the vet nurses that demonstrate the care. Name. And one thing that really resonated with me was I was, I was talking to someone when I was door knocking, actually, and they said when their, um, their, their mother went to hospital with dementia and they said um, she got treatment, but she didn't get care. And I thought that's something that's quite important. I've never heard that phrase before. And I think nurses are integral to, to not only caring, but demonstrating to owners that we're, that we're a caring profession. So yes, yeah, so nurses out there who, who are doing all that work, often the owner facing work as well. It's great work that you do. And, you know, vets often are thinking very much about the science side of things, the medicine side of things. And it's often the nurses that really do add that, that value and compassion and that's it's yeah it's a great job you do thank you well we're going to shoot so thank you so much for coming on danny thank you to our wonderful audience for uh joining us and for watching us and thank you anita for your fantastic comments and we look forward to seeing you for our next cup of tea with a vet soon and hopefully i'll have the vet on that danny nominated take care bye bye <laughs> Thank you for listening to Cup of Tea with the Vet. If you want to hear it live and get involved, join us on our Facebook or YouTube channel, Animal Physiotherapy Limited. And if you can leave a review, please do. They really help and I read every single one. Thanks for listening. <laughs>